Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back? The House of the Dead Hand by Edith Wharton. Published August 1904 in Atlantic Monthly. 1. Above all, the letter ended, don't leave Siena without seeing Dr. Lombard's Leonardo. Lombard is a queer old Englishman, a mystic or a madman, if the two are not synonymous, and a devout student of the Italian Renaissance. He's lived for years in Italy, exploring its remotest corners, and has lately picked up an undoubted Leonardo, which came to light in a farmhouse near Bergamo. It is believed to be one of the missing pictures mentioned by Vasari and is, at any rate, according to the most competent authorities, a genuine and almost untouched example of the best period. Lombard's a queer stick and jealous of showing his treasures, but we struck up a friendship when I was working on the Sodomers in Siena three years ago, and if you give him the enclosed line, you may get a peep at the Leonardo. Probably not more than a peep, though, for I hear he refuses to have it reproduced. I want badly to use it in my monograph on the Windsor drawings, so please see what you can do for me. And if you can't persuade him to let you take a photograph or make a sketch, at least jot down a detailed description of the picture and get from him all the facts you can. I hear that the French and Italian governments have offered him a large advance on his purchase, but that he refuses to sell at any price, though he certainly can't afford such luxuries. In fact, I don't see where he got enough money to buy the picture. He lives in the Via Papa Giulio. Wyant sat at the table d'hote of his hotel, re-reading his friend's letter over a late luncheon. He had been five days in Siena without having found time to call on Dr. Lombard, not from any indifference to the opportunity presented, but because it was his first visit to the strange red city, and he was still under the spell of its more conspicuous wonders the brick palaces flinging out their wrought iron torch-holders with the gesture of arrogant suzerainty, the great council chamber emblazoned with civic allegories, the pageant of Pope Julius on the library walls, the Sodomas smiling balefully through the dusk of mouldering chapels. And it was only when his first hunger was appeased that he remembered that one course in the banquet was still untasted. He put the letter in his pocket and turned to leave the room, with a nod to its only other occupant, an olive-skinned young man with lustrous eyes and a low collar, who sat on the other side of the table, perusing the fanfula di Domenica. This gentleman, his daily vis-a-vis, returned the nod with a Latin eloquence of gesture, and Wyant passed on to the antechamber, where he paused to light a cigarette. He was just restoring the case to his pocket when he heard a hurried step behind him, and the lustrous-eyed young man advanced through the glass doors of the dining-room. Pardon me, sir, he said in measured English, and with an intonation of exquisite politeness, you have let this letter fall. Wyant, recognising his friend's note of introduction to Dr. Lombard, took it with a word of thanks, and was about to turn away when he perceived that the eyes of his fellow diner remained fixed on him with a gaze of melancholy interrogation. Again, pardon me, the young man at length ventured, but are you by chance the friend of the illustrious Dr. Lombard? No, returned Wyant, with the instinctive Anglo-Saxon distrust of foreign advances. 
Then, fearing to appear rude, he said with a guarded politeness, Perhaps, by the way, you could tell me the number of his house. I see it is not given here. The young man brightened perceptibly. The number of the house is thirteen, but anyone can indicate it to you. It is well known in Siena. It is called, he continued after a moment, the house of the dead hand. Wyant stared. What a queer name, he said. The name comes from an antique hand of marble which for many hundred years has been above the door. Wyant was turning away with a gesture of thanks when the other added, If you would have the kindness to ring twice. Uh, to ring twice? At the doctor's, the young man smiled. It is the custom. It was a dazzling March afternoon, with a shower of sun from the mid-blue and a marshalling of slaty clouds behind the umber-coloured hills. For nearly an hour Wyant loitered on Alitza, watching the shadows race across the naked landscape and the thunder blacken in the west. Then he decided to set out for the house of the dead hand. The map in his guidebook showed him that the Via Papa Giulio was one of the streets which radiate from the piazza, and thither he bent his course, pausing at every other step to fill his eye with some fresh image of weather-beaten beauty. The clouds had rolled upward, obscuring the sunshine, and hanging like a funereal baldachin above the projecting cornices of Dr. Lombard's street. And Wyant walked for some distance in the shade of the beetling palace fronts, before his eye fell on a doorway, surmounted by a sallow marble hand. He stood for a moment, staring up at the strange emblem. The hand was a woman's, a dead, drooping hand, which hung there convulsed and helpless, as though it had been thrust forth in denunciation of some evil mystery within the house, and had sunk, struggling, into death. A girl who was drawing water from the well in the court said that the English doctor lived on the first floor, and Wyant, passing through a glazed door, mounted the damp degrees of a vaulted stairway with a plaster Esculapius mouldering in a niche on the landing. Facing the Esculapius was another door, and as Wyant put his hand on the bell rope, he remembered his unknown friend's injunction, and rang twice. His ring was answered by a peasant woman with a low forehead and small, close-set eyes, who, after a prolonged scrutiny of himself, his card, and his letter of introduction, left him standing in a high, cold, antechamber floored with brick. He heard her wooden patens click down an interminable corridor, and after some delay she returned and told him to follow her. They passed through a long saloon, bare as the antechamber, but loftily vaulted and frescoed with a seventeenth-century triumph of Scipio or Alexander, martial figures following Wyant with the filmed melancholy gaze of shades in limbo. At the end of this apartment he was admitted to a smaller room, with the same atmosphere of mortal cold, but showing more obvious signs of occupancy. The walls were covered with tapestry, which had faded to the grey-brown tints of decaying vegetation, so that the young man felt as though he were entering a sunless autumn wood. Against these hangings stood a few tall cabinets on heavy gilt feet, and at a table in the window three persons were seated. An elderly lady who was warming her hands over a brazier, a girl bent above a strip of needlework, and an old man. As the latter advanced toward Wyant, 
the young man was conscious of staring with unseemly intentness at his small round-backed figure, dressed with shabby disorder and surmounted by a wonderful head, lean, vulpine, eagle-beaked as that of some art-loving despot of the Renaissance. A head combining the venerable hair and large prominent eyes of the humanist with the greedy profile of the adventurer. Wyant, in musing on the Italian portrait medals of the fifteenth century, had often fancied that only in that period of fierce individualism could type so paradoxical have been produced. Yet the subtle craftsman who committed them to the bronze had never drawn a face more strangely stamped with contradictory passions than that of Dr. Lombard. "'I'm glad to see you,' he said to Wyant, extending a hand which seemed a mere framework held together by knotted veins. "'We lead a quiet life here and receive few visitors, but any friend of Professor Clyde's is welcome.' Then, with the gesture which included the two women, he added dryly, "'My wife and daughter often talk of Professor Clyde.' "'Oh, yes, he used to make me such a nice toast. "'They don't understand toast in Italy,' said Mrs. Lombard in a high, plaintive voice. "'It would have been difficult from Dr. Lombard's manner and appearance to guess his nationality, "'but his wife was so inconsciently and ineradicably English "'that even the silhouette of her cap seemed a protest against continental laxities. "'She was a stout, fair woman, with pale cheeks netted with red lines.' A brooch with a miniature portrait sustained a bogwood watch chain upon her bosom, and at her elbow lay a heap of knitting and an old copy of the Queen. The young girl, who had remained standing, was a slim replica of her mother with an apple-cheeked face and opaque blue eyes. Her small head was prodigally laden with braids of dull, fair hair, and she might have had a kind of transient prettiness but for the sullen droop of her round mouth. It was hard to say whether her expression implied ill-temper or apathy, but Wyant was struck by the contrast between the fierce vitality of the doctor's age and the inanimateness of his daughter's youth. Seating himself in the chair which his host advanced, the young man tried to open the conversation by addressing to Mrs. Lombard some random remark on the beauties of Siena. The lady murmured a resigned assent, and Dr. Lombard interposed with a smile. My dear sir, my wife considers Siena a most salubrious spot, and is favourably impressed by the cheapness of the marketing, but she deplores the total absence of muffins and cannel coat, and cannot resign herself to the Italian method of dusting furniture. But they don't, you know, they don't dust it, Mrs. Lombard protested, without showing any resentment of her husband's manner. Precisely, they don't dust it. Since we have lived in Siena, we have not once seen the cobwebs removed from the battlements of the manger. Can you conceive of such housekeeping? My wife has never yet dared to write it home to her aunts in Bonechurch. Mrs. Lombard accepted in silence this remarkable statement of her views, and her husband, with a malicious smile at Wyant's embarrassment, planted himself suddenly before the young man. And now, said he, do you want to see my Leonardo? Do I? cried Wyant on his feet in a flash. The doctor chuckled. Ah, he said, with a kind of crooning deliberation. That's the way they all behave. That's what they all come for. He turned to his daughter with another variation of mockery in his smile. Don't fancy it's for your beau year, my dear, 
or for the mature charms of Mrs. Lombard, he added, glaring suddenly at his wife, who had taken up her knitting and was softly murmuring over the number of her stitches. Neither lady appeared to notice his pleasantries, and he continued, addressing himself to Wyand, They all come, they all come, but many are called and few are chosen. His voice sank to solemnity. While I live, he said, no unworthy eye shall desecrate that picture, but I will not do my friend Clyde the injustice to suppose that he would send an unworthy representative. He tells me he wishes a description of the picture for his book, and you shall describe it to him, if you can. Wyant hesitated, not knowing whether it was a propitious moment to put in his appeal for a photograph. Well, sir, he said, you know Clyde wants me to take away all I can of it. Dr. Lombard eyed him sardonically. You're welcome to take away all you can carry, he replied, adding, as he turned to his daughter, that is, if he has your permission, Sibylla. The girl rose without a word, and laying aside her work, took a key from the secret drawer in one of the cabinets, while the doctor continued in the same note of grim jocularity, for you must know that the picture is not mine. It is my daughter's. He followed with evident amusement the surprised glance which Wyant turned on the young girl's impassive figure. Sibylla, he pursued, is a votary of the arts. She has inherited her fond father's passion for the unattainable. Luckily, however, she also recently inherited a tidy legacy from her grandmother, and having seen the Leonardo, on which its discoverer had placed the price far beyond my reach, she took a step which deserves to go down in history. She invested her whole inheritance in the purchase of the picture, thus enabling me to spend my closing years in communion with one of the world's masterpieces. My dear sir, could Antigone do more? The object of this strange eulogy had meanwhile drawn aside one of the tapestry hangings and fitted her key into a concealed door. Come, said Dr. Lombard, let us go before the light fails us. Wyant glanced at Mrs. Lombard, who continued to knit impassively. No, no, said his host, my wife will not come with us. You might not suspect it from her conversation, but my wife has no feeling for art, Italian art, that is, for no one is fonder of our early Victorian school. Frith's railway station, you know, said Mrs. Lombard, smiling. I like an animated picture. Miss Lombard, who had unlocked the door, held back the tapestry to let her father and Wyant pass out. Then she followed them down a narrow stone passage with another door at its end. This door was iron-barred, and Wyant noticed that it had a complicated patent lock. The girl fitted another key into the lock, and Dr. Lombard led the way into a small room. The dark panelling of this apartment was irradiated by streams of yellow light slanting through the disbanded thunderclouds, and in the central brightness hung a picture concealed by a curtain of faded velvet. "'Little too bright, Sibylla,' said Dr. Lombard. His face had grown solemn, and his mouth twitched nervously as his daughter drew a linen drapery across the upper part of the window. "'That'll do, that'll do,' he turned impressively to Wyatt. "'Do you see the pomegranate bud in this rug? Place yourself there. Keep your left foot on it, please. And now, Sibylla?' Draw the cord. Miss Lombard advanced and placed her hand on a cord hidden behind the velvet curtain. 
Ah, said the doctor, one moment. I should like you, while looking at the picture, to have in mind a few lines of verse. Sibylla? Without the slightest change of countenance and with a promptness which proved her to be prepared for the request, Miss Lombard began to recite in a full round voice like her mother's St. Bernard's invocation to the Virgin in the thirty-third canto of the Paradise. Thank you, my dear, said her father, drawing a deep breath as she ended. That unapproachable combination of vowel sounds repairs one better than anything I know for the contemplation of the picture. As he spoke, the folds of velvet slowly parted, and the Leonardo appeared in its frame of tarnished gold. From the nature of Miss Lombard's recitation, Wyant had expected a sacred subject, and his surprise was therefore great as the composition was gradually revealed by the widening division of the curtain. In the background, a steel-coloured river wound through a pale, calcareous landscape, while to the left, on a lonely peak, a crucified Christ hung livid against indigo clouds. The central figure of the foreground, however, was that of a woman, seated in an antique chair of marble with bar-reliefs of dancing maenads. Her feet rested on a meadow sprinkled with minute wild flowers, and her attitude of smiling majesty recalled out of Dossodossi's Circe. She wore a red robe flowing in closely fluted lines from under a fancifully embroidered cloak. Above her high forehead the crinkled golden hair flowed sideways beneath a veil. One hand drooped on the arm of her chair, the other held up an inverted human skull, into which a young Dionysus, smooth, brown, and sidelong as the St. John of the Louvre, poured a stream of wine from a high-poised flagon. At the lady's feet lay the symbols of art and luxury, a flute and a roll of music, a platter heaped with grapes and roses, the torso of a Greek statue, and a bowl overflowing with coins and jewels. Behind her, on the chalky hilltop, hung the crucified Christ. A scroll in the corner of the foreground bore the legend, Lux Mundi. Wyant, emerging from the first plunge of wonder, turned inquiringly towards his companions. Neither had moved. Miss Lombard stood with her hand on the cord, her lids lowered, her mouth drooping. The doctor, his strange, thoth-like profile turned towards his guest, was still lost in rapt contemplation of his treasure. Wyant addressed the young girl. You are uh, fortunate, he said, to be the possessor of anything so perfect. It is considered very beautiful, she said coldly. Beautiful, beautiful, the doctor burst out. Ah, the poor, worn-out, overworked word. There are no adjectives in the language fresh enough to describe such pristine brilliancy. All their brightness has been worn off by misuse. Think of the things that have been called beautiful, and then look at that. It is worthy of a new vocabulary, Wyant agreed. Yes, Dr. Lombard continued. My daughter is indeed fortunate. She has chosen what Catholics call the higher life, the council of perfection. What other private person enjoys the same opportunity of understanding the master? Who else lives under the same roof with an untouched masterpiece of Leonardo's? 
Think of the happiness of being always under the influence of such a creation, of living into it, of partaking of it in daily and hourly communion. This room is a chapel. The sight of that picture is a sacrament. What an atmosphere for a young life to unfold itself in. My daughter is singularly blessed. Sibylla, point out some of the details to Mr. Wyant. I see that he will appreciate them. The girl turned her dense blue eyes toward Wyant. Then, glancing away from him, she pointed at the canvas. Notice the modelling of the left hand, she began in a monotonous voice. It recalls the hand of the Mona Lisa. The head of the naked genius will remind you of that of the St. John of the Louvre, but it is more purely pagan and is turned a little less to the right. The embroidery on the cloak is symbolic. You will see that the roots of this plant have burst through the vase. This recalls the famous definition of Hamlet's character in Wilhelm Meister. Here are the mystic rose, the flame and the serpent, emblem of eternity. Some of the other symbols we have not yet been able to decipher. Wyant watched her curiously. She seemed to be reciting a lesson. And uh, the picture itself, he said. How do you explain that? Lux mundi. What a curious device to connect with such a subject. What can it mean? Miss Lombard dropped her eyes. The answer was evidently not included in her lesson. What indeed, the doctor interposed. What does life mean? As one may define it in a hundred different ways, so one may find a hundred different meanings in this picture. Its symbolism is as many-faceted as a well-cut diamond. Who, for instance, is that divine lady? Is it she who is the true Lux Mundi, the light reflected from jewels and young eyes, from polished marble and clear waters and statues of bronze? Or is that the light of the world extinguished on yonder stormy hill? And is this lady the pride of life, feasting blindly on the wine of iniquity, with her back turned toward the light which has shone for her in vain? Something of both these meanings may be traced in the picture, but to me it symbolises rather the central truth of existence, that all that is raised in incorruption is sown in corruption, art, beauty, love, religion, that all our wine is drunk out of skulls and poured for us by the mysterious genius of a remote and cruel past. The doctor's face blazed. His bent figure seemed to straighten itself and become taller. Ah, he cried, growing more dithyrambic. How lightly you ask what it means. How confidently you expect an answer. Yet here am I who have given my life to the study of the Renaissance, who have violated its tomb, laid open its dead body, and traced the course of every muscle, bone, and artery, who have sucked its very soul from the pages of poets and humanists, who have wept and believed with Joachim of Flora, smiled and doubted with Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini, who have patiently followed to its source the least inspiration of the masters and groped in Neolithic caverns and Babylonian ruins for the first unfolding tendrils of the arabesques of Mantegna and Crivelli. And I tell you that I stand abashed and ignorant before the mystery of this picture. 
It means nothing. It means all things. It may represent the period which saw its creation. It may represent all ages, past and to come. There are volumes of meaning in the tiniest emblem on the lady's cloak. The blossoms of its border are rooted in the deepest soil of myth and tradition. Don't ask what it means, young man, but bow your head in thankfulness for having seen it. Miss Lombard laid her hand on his arm. Don't excite yourself, father, she said, in a detached tone of a professional nurse. He answered with a despairing gesture. Ah, it's easy for you to talk. You have years and years to spend with it. I am an old man, and every moment counts. It's bad for you, she repeated with gentle obstinacy. The doctor's sacred fury had in fact burnt itself out. He dropped into a seat with dull eyes and slackening lips, and his daughter drew the curtain across the picture. Wyant turned away reluctantly. He felt that his opportunity was slipping from him, yet he dared not refer to Clyde's wish for a photograph. He now understood the meaning of the laugh with which Dr. Lombard had given him leave to carry away all the details he could remember. The picture was so dazzling, so unexpected, so crossed with elusive and contradictory suggestions that the most alert observer, when placed suddenly before it, must lose his coordinating faculty in a sense of confused wonder. Yet how valuable to Clyde the record of such a work would be! In some ways it seemed to be the summing up of the master's thought, the key to his enigmatic philosophy. The doctor had risen and was walking slowly toward the door. His daughter unlocked it, and Wyant followed them back in silence to the room in which they had left Mrs. Lombard. That lady was no longer there, and he could think of no excuse for lingering. He thanked the doctor and turned to Miss Lombard, who stood in the middle of the room as though awaiting further orders. It's very good of you, he said, to allow one even a glimpse of such a treasure. She looked at him with her odd directness. You will come again, she said quickly, and turning to her father, she added, You know what Professor Clyde asked. This gentleman cannot give him any account of the picture without seeing it again. Dr. Lombard glanced at her vaguely. He was still like a person in a trance. Eh? he said, rousing himself with an effort. I said, father, that Mr. Wyant must see the picture again, if he is to tell Professor Clyde about it, Miss Lombard repeated with extraordinary precision of tone. Wyant was silent. He had the puzzled sense that his wishes were being divined and gratified for reasons with which he was in no way connected. Well, well, the doctor muttered, I, I don't say no. I don't say no. I know what Clyde wants. I don't refuse to help him. He turned to Wyant. You may come again. You may make notes, he added with a sudden effort. Jot down what occurs to you. I'm willing to concede that. Wyant again caught the girl's eye, but its emphatic message perplexed him. You're very good, he said tentatively, but the fact is, the picture is so uh, mysterious, so full of complicated detail, that I'm afraid no notes I could make would serve Clyde's purpose as well as... Uh, as a photograph, say, if you would allow me. Miss Lombard's brow darkened, and her father raised his head furiously. A photograph! A photograph, did you say? Good God, man! Not ten people have been allowed to set foot in that room! A photograph! Wyant saw his mistake, but saw also that he had gone too far to retreat. 
I know, sir, from what Clyde has told me, that you object to having any reproduction of the picture published, but he hoped you might let me take a photograph for his uh, personal use, not to be reproduced in his book, but simply to give him something to work by. I should take the photograph myself, and the negative would, of course, be yours. If you wished it, only one impression would be struck off, and that one Clyde could return to you when he had done with it. Dr. Lombard interrupted him with a snarl. When he had done with it, just so, I thank thee for that word. When it had been re-photographed, drawn, traced, autotyped, passed about from hand to hand, defiled by every ignorant eye in England, vulgarised by the blundering praise of every art scribbler in Europe. Pah! I'd as soon give you the picture itself. Why don't you ask for that? Well, sir, said Wyatt calmly, if you will trust me with it, I'll engage to take it safely to England and back, and to let no eye but Clyde see it while it's out of your keeping. The doctor received this remarkable proposal in silence. Then he burst into a laugh. Upon my soul, he said, with sardonic good humour. It was Miss Lombard's turn to look perplexedly at Wyant. His last words and her father's unexpected reply had evidently carried her beyond her depth. Well, sir, am I to take the picture? Wyant smilingly pursued. No, young man, nor a photograph of it, nor a sketch either. Mind that. Nothing that can be reproduced. Sibylla, he cried with sudden passion, swear to me that the picture shall never be reproduced. No photograph, no sketch now or afterward. Do you hear me? Yes, father, said the girl quietly. The vandals, he muttered, the desecrators of beauty. If I thought it would ever get into their hands, I'd burn it first by God. He turned to Wyant, speaking more quietly. I said you might come back. I never retract what I say. But you must give me your word that none but Clyde shall see the notes you make. Wyant was growing warm. If you won't trust me with a photograph, I wonder you trust me not to show my notes, he exclaimed. The doctor looked at him with a malicious smile. Hmm, he said. Would they be much use to anybody? Wyant saw that he was losing ground and controlled his impatience. To Clyde, I hope, at any rate, he answered, holding out his hand. The doctor shook it without a trace of resentment, and Wyatt added, When shall I come, sir? Tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, cried Miss Lombard, speaking suddenly. She looked fixedly at her father, and he shrugged his shoulders. The picture's hers, he said to Wyatt. In the antechamber, the young man was met by the woman who had admitted him. She handed him his hat and stick, and turned to unbar the door. As the bolt slipped back, he felt a touch on his arm. "'You have a letter,' she said in a low tone. "'A, a letter?' he stared. "'What letter?' She shrugged her shoulders and drew back to let him pass. Two. As Wyant emerged from the house, he paused once more to glance up at its scarred brick façade. The marble hand drooped tragically above the entrance. In the waning light it seemed to have relaxed into the passiveness of despair, and Wyatt stood musing on its hidden meaning. But the dead hand was not the only mysterious thing about Dr. Lombard's house. What were the relations between Miss Lombard and her father? Above all, between Miss Lombard and her picture? She did not look like a person capable of a disinterested passion for the arts, and there had been moments when it struck Wyatt that she hated the picture. The sky at the end of the street was flooded with turbulent yellow light, 
and the young man turned his steps towards the church of San Domenico in the hope of catching the lingering brightness on Sodoma St. Catherine. The great bare aisles were almost dark when he entered, and he had to grope his way to the chapel steps. Under the momentary evocation of the sunset, the saint's figure emerged pale and swooning from the dusk, and the warm light gave a sensual tinge to her ecstasy. The flesh seemed to glow and heave, the eyelids to tremble. Wyant stood fascinated by the accidental collaboration of light and colour. Suddenly he noticed that something white had fluttered to the ground at his feet. He stooped and picked up a small thin sheet of notepaper, folded and sealed like an old-fashioned letter, and bearing the superscription, To the Count Ottaviano Chelsea. Wyant stared at this mysterious document. Where had it come from? He was distinctly conscious of having seen it fall through the air close to his feet. He glanced up at the dark ceiling of the chapel, then he turned and looked about the church. There was only one figure in it, that of a man who knelt near the high altar. Suddenly Wyant recalled the question of Dr. Lombard's maidservant. Was this the letter she had asked for? Had he been unconsciously carrying it about with him all the afternoon? Who was the Count Ottaviano Chelsea? And how came Wyant to have been chosen to act as that nobleman's ambulant letterbox? Wyant laid his hat and stick on the chapel steps and began to explore his pockets in the irrational hope of finding there some clue to the mystery. But they held nothing which he had not himself put there, and he was reduced to wondering how the letter, supposing some unknown hand to have bestowed it on him, had happened to fall out while he stood motionless before the picture. At this point he was disturbed by a step on the floor of the aisle, and turning he saw his lustrous-eyed neighbour of the table d'hôte. The young man bowed and waved an apologetic hand. I do not intrude, he inquired suavely. Without waiting for a reply he mounted the steps of the chapel, glancing about him with the affable air of an afternoon caller. I see, he remarked with a smile, that you know the hour at which our saint should be visited. Wyant agreed that the hour was indeed felicitous. The stranger stood beamingly before the picture. What grace, what poetry, he murmured, apostrophizing the St. Catherine, but letting his glance slip rapidly about the chapel as he spoke. Wyant, detecting the manoeuvre, murmured a brief assent. But it is cold here, mortally cold. You do not find it so. The intruder put on his hat. It is permitted at this hour when the church is empty, and you, my dear sir, do you not feel a dampness? You are an artist, are you not? And to artists it is permitted to cover the head when they are engaged in the study of the paintings. He darted suddenly toward the steps and bent over Wyant's hat. Permit me, cover yourself, he said a moment later, holding out the hat with an ingratiating gesture. A light flashed on Wyant. Perhaps, he said, looking straight at the young man, you will tell me your name. My own is Wyant. The stranger, surprised but not disconcerted, drew forth a coroneted card, which he offered with a low bow. On the card was engraved, Il Conte Ottaviano Chelsea. I'm much obliged to you, said Wyant, and... I may as well tell you that the letter which you apparently expected to find in the lining of my hat is not there, but in my pocket. He drew it out and handed it to his owner, who had grown very pale. And now, Wyatt continued, you will perhaps be good enough to tell me 
what all this means. There was no mistaking the effect produced on Count Ottaviano by this request. His lips moved, but he achieved only an ineffectual smile. I suppose you know, Wyant went on, his anger rising at the sight of the other's discomfiture, that you have taken an unwarrantable liberty. I don't understand what part I have been made to play, but it's evident that you have made use of me to serve some purpose of your own, and I propose to know the reason why. Count Ottaviano advanced with an imploring gesture. Sir, he pleaded, you permit me to speak. I expect you to, cried Wyant. But not here, he added, hearing the clank of the verger's keys. It's growing dark, and we shall be turned out in a few minutes. He walked across the church, and Count Ottaviano followed him out into the deserted square. Now, said Wyant, pausing on the steps. The Count, who had regained some measure of self-possession, began to speak in a high key, with an accompaniment of conciliatory gesture. My dear sir, my dear Mr. Wyant, you find me in an abominable position, that, as a man of honour, I immediately confess. I have taken advantage of you, yes. I have counted on your uh, amiability, your uh, chivalry. Uh, too far, perhaps? Uh, I confess it. But what could I do? It was uh, to oblige a lady. He laid a hand on his heart. A lady whom I would die to serve. He went on with increasing volubility, his deliberate English swept away by a torrent of Italian, through which Wyant with some difficulty struggled to a comprehension of the case. Count Ottaviano, according to his own statement, had come to Siena some months previously on business connected with his mother's property, the paternal estate being near Orvieto, of which ancient city his father was syndic. Soon after his arrival in Siena, the young Count had met the incomparable daughter of Dr. Lombard, and falling deeply in love with her, had prevailed on his parents to ask her hand in marriage. Dr. Lombard had not opposed his suit, but when the question of settlements arose, it became known that Miss Lombard, who was possessed of a small property in her own right, had, a short time before, invested the whole amount in the purchase of the Bergamo Leonardo. Thereupon, Count Ottaviano's parents had politely suggested that she should sell the picture and thus recover her independence. And this proposal being met by a curt refusal from Dr. Lombard, they had withdrawn their consent to their son's marriage. The young lady's attitude had hitherto been one of passive submission. She was horribly afraid of her father, and would never venture openly to oppose him. But she had made known to Ottaviano her intention of not giving him up, of waiting patiently till events should take a more favourable turn. She seemed hardly aware, the Count said with a sigh, that the means of escape lay in her own hands, that she was of age and had a right to sell the picture and to marry without asking her father's consent. Meanwhile, her suitor spared no pains to keep himself before her, to remind her that he too was waiting, and would never give her up. Dr. Lombard, who suspected the young man of trying to persuade Sibylla to sell the picture, had forbidden the lovers to meet or to correspond. They were thus driven to clandestine communication, and had several times the Count ingenuously avowed, made use of the doctor's visitors as a means of exchanging letters, and you told the visitors to ring twice, Wyant interposed. The young man extended his hands in a deprecating gesture. Could Mr. Wyant blame him? He was young. He was ardent. He was enamoured. 
the young lady had done him the supreme honour of avowing her attachment, of pledging her unalterable fidelity, should he suffer his devotion to be outdone. But his purpose in writing to her, he admitted, was not merely to reiterate his fidelity. He was trying by every means in his power to induce her to sell the picture. He had organised a plan of action, every detail was complete. If she would but have the courage to carry out his instructions, he would answer for the result. His idea was that she should secretly retire to a convent of which his aunt was the mother superior, and from that stronghold should transact the sale of the Leonardo. He had a purchaser ready, he was willing to pay a large sum, a sum, Count Ottaviano whispered, considerably in excess of the young lady's original inheritance. Once the picture sold, it could, if necessary, be removed by force from Dr. Lombard's house, and his daughter, being safely in the convent, would be spared the painful scenes incidental to the removal. Finally, if Dr. Lombard were vindictive enough to refuse his consent to her marriage, she had only to make a sommation respecteuse, and at the end of the prescribed delay, no power on earth could prevent her becoming the wife of Count Ottaviano. Wyant's anger had fallen at the recital of this simple romance. It was absurd to be angry with a young man who confided his secrets to the first stranger he met in the streets and placed his hand on his heart whenever he mentioned the name of his betrothed. The easiest way out of the business was to take it all as a joke. Wyant had played the wall to this new Perimus and Thisbe and was philosophic enough to laugh at the part he had unwittingly performed. He held out his hand with a smile to Count Ottaviano. I won't deprive you any longer, he said, of the pleasure of reading your letter. Oh, sir, a thousand thanks. And when you return to the Casa Lombard, you will take a message from me, the letter she expected this afternoon. The letter she expected, Wyatt paused. No, thank you. I thought you understood that where I come from, we don't do that kind of thing. Knowingly. But, sir, to serve a young lady. I'm sorry for the young lady, if what you tell me is true. The Count's expressive hands resented the doubt. But remember that if I am under obligations to anyone in this matter, it is to her father, who has admitted me to his house and has allowed me to see his picture. His picture! Hers! Well, the house is his at all events. Unhappily, since to her it is a dungeon. Why doesn't she leave it, then? exclaimed Wyand impatiently. The Count clasped his hands. Ah! How you say that? With what force? With what virility? If you would but say it to her in that tone, you, her countryman, she has no one to advise her. The mother is an idiot. The father is terrible. She is in his power. It is my belief that he would kill her if she resisted him. Mr. Wyand, I tremble for her life while she remains in that house. Oh, come, said Wyand lightly. They seem to understand each other well enough. But in any case, you must see that I can't interfere. At least you would, if you were an Englishman, he added, an escape of contempt. 3. Wyant's affiliations in Siena being restricted to an acquaintance with his landlady, he was forced to apply to her for the verification of Count Ottaviano's story. The young nobleman had, it appeared, given a perfectly correct account of his situation. His father, Count Chelsea Monirone, was a man of distinguished family and some wealth. He was a syndic of Orvieto, and lived either in that town or on his neighbouring estate of Monirone. 
His wife owned a large property near Siena, and Count Ottaviano, who was the second son, came there from time to time to look into its management. The eldest son was in the army, the youngest in the church, and an aunt of Count Ottaviano was mother superior of the Visitandine convent in Siena. At one time it had been said that Count Ottaviano, who was a most amiable and accomplished young man, was to marry the daughter of the strange Englishman, Dr. Lombard. But difficulties having arisen as to the adjustment of the young lady's dowry, Count Chelsea Monirone had very properly broken off the match. It was sad for the young man, however, who was said to be deeply in love, and to find frequent excuses for coming to Siena to inspect his mother's estate. Viewed in the light of Count Ottaviano's personality, the story had a tinge of opera buffet. But the next morning, as Wyant mounted the stairs of the House of the Dead Hand, the situation insensibly assumed another aspect. It was impossible to take Dr. Lombard lightly, and there was a suggestion of fatality in the appearance of his gaunt dwelling. Who could tell amid what tragic records of domestic tyranny and fluttering broken purposes the little drama of Miss Lombard's fate was being played out? Might not the accumulated influences of such a house modify the lives within it in a manner unguessed by the inmates of a suburban villa with sanitary plumbing and a telephone? One person at least remained unperturbed by such fanciful problems, and that was Mrs. Lombard, who, at Wyant's entrance, raised a placidly wrinkled brow from her knitting. The morning was mild, and her chair had been wheeled into a bar of sunshine near the window, so that she made a cheerful spot of prose in the poetic gloom of her surroundings. "'What a nice morning,' she said. "'It must be delightful weather at Bonchurch.' A dull blue glance wandered across the narrow street with its threatening house-fronts, and fluttered back, baffled like a bird with clipped wings. It was evident, poor lady, that she had never seen beyond the opposite houses. Wyant was not sorry to find her alone. Seeing that she was surprised at his reappearance, he said at once, "'I've come back to study Miss Lombard's picture.' "'Oh, uh, the picture!' Mrs. Lombard's face expressed a gentle disappointment, which might have been boredom in a person of acuter sensibilities. "'It's a, it's an original Leonardo, you know,' she said mechanically. "'And Miss Lombard's very proud of it, I suppose. She seems to have inherited her father's love for art.' Mrs. Lombard counted her stitches, and he went on, "'It's unusual in so young a girl. Such tastes generally develop later.' Mrs. Lombard looked up eagerly. "'That's what I say. I was quite different at her age, you know. I liked dancing and doing a pretty bit of fancy work. Not that I couldn't sketch, too. I had a master down from London. My aunts have some of my crayons hung up in their drawing-room now. I uh, did a view of Kenilworth that was sort pleasing. But I liked a picnic, too, or a pretty walk through the woods with young people of my own age.' I say it's more natural, Mr. Wyand. One may have a feeling for art and do crayons that are worth framing, and yet not give up on everything else. I was taught that there were other things. Wyand, half ashamed of provoking these innocent confidences, could not resist another question. And Miss Lombard cares for nothing else. Her mother looked troubled. Sibylla is so clever. She says I don't understand. 
You know how self-confident young people are. My husband never said that of me now. He knows I had an excellent education. My aunts were very particular. I was brought up to have opinions, and my husband has always respected them. He says himself that he wouldn't for the world miss hearing my opinion on any subject. You may have noticed that he often refers to my tastes. He has always respected my preference for living in England. He likes to hear me give my reasons for it. He is so much interested in my ideas that he often says he knows just what I'm going to say before I speak. But Sibylla doesn't care for what I think. At this point, Dr. Lombard entered. He glanced sharply at Wyant. The servant's a fool. She didn't tell me we're here. His eye turned to his wife. Well, my dear, what have you been telling Mr. Wyant about the answered bond church, I'll be bound? Mrs. Lombard looked triumphantly at Wyant and her husband rubbed his hooked fingers with a smile. Mrs. Lombard's aunts are very superior women. They subscribe to the circulating library and borrow good words and the monthly packet from the curate's wife across the way. They have the rector to tea twice a year and keep a page boy and are visited by two baronet's wives. They devoted themselves to the education of their orphan niece, and I think, I may say without boasting, that Mrs. Lombard's conversation shows marked traces of the advantages she enjoyed. Mrs. Lombard coloured with pleasure. I was telling Mr. Wyant that my aunts were very particular. Quite so, my dear. And did you mention that they never sleep in anything but linen, and that Miss Sophia puts away the furs and blankets every spring with her own hands? Both those facts are interesting to the student of human nature. Dr. Lombard glanced at his watch. But we are missing an incomparable moment. The light is perfect at this hour. Wyant rose and the doctor led him through the tapestry door and down the passageway. The light was, in fact, perfect, and the picture shone with an inner radiancy as though a lamp burned behind the soft screen of the lady's flesh. Every detail of the foreground detached itself with jewel-like precision. Wyant noticed a dozen accessories which had escaped him on the previous day. He drew out his notebook, and the doctor, who had dropped his sardonic grin for a look of devout contemplation, pushed a chair forward and seated himself on a carved settle against the wall. Now then, he said, tell Clyde what you can, but the letter killeth. He sank down, his hands hanging on the arm of the settle like the claws of a dead bird, his eyes fixed on Wyant's notebook with the obvious intention of detecting any attempt at a surreptitious sketch. Wyant, nettled at this surveillance and disturbed by the speculations which Dr. Lombard's strange household excited, sat motionless for a few minutes, staring first at the picture and then at the blank pages of the notebook. The thought that Dr. Lombard was enjoying his discomfiture at length roused him and he began to write. He was interrupted by a knock on the iron door. Dr. Lombard rose to unlock it and his daughter entered. She bowed hurriedly to Wyant without looking at him. Father, uh, have you forgotten that the man from Monte Amiato was to come back this morning with an answer about the bar relief? Uh, he's here now. He says he can't wait. The devil! cried her father impatiently. Didn't you tell him? Yes. But he says he can't come back. If you want to see him, you must come now. Then you think there's a chance? She nodded. 
He turned and looked at Wyant, who was writing assiduously. You will stay here, Sibylla. I shall be back in a moment. He hurried out, locking the door behind him. Wyant had looked up, wondering if Miss Lombard would show any surprise at being locked in with him, but it was his turn to be surprised. For hardly had they heard the key withdrawn when she moved close to him, a small face pale and tumultuous. I arranged it. I must speak to you, she gasped. He'll be back in five minutes. Her courage seemed to fail, and she looked at him helplessly. Wyand had a sense of stepping among explosives. He glanced about him at the dusky vaulted room, at the haunting smile of the strange picture overhead, and at the pink and white girl whispering of conspiracies in a voice meant to exchange platitudes with a curate. How can I help you? he said with a rush of compassion. Oh, if you would! I never have a chance to speak to anyone. It's so difficult. He watches me. He'll be back immediately. Try to tell me what I can do. I, I don't dare. I feel as if he were behind me. She turned away, fixing her eyes on the picture. A sound startled her. There he comes, and I haven't spoken. It was my only chance. But it bewilders me so to be hurried. I don't hear anyone, said Wyant, listening. Try to tell me. How can I make you understand? It would take so long to explain. She drew a deep breath, and then, with a plunge, Will you come here again this afternoon, at about five? She whispered. Come here again? Yes. You can ask to see the picture. Make some excuse. He'll come with you, of course. I'll open the door for you and, and lock you both in, she gasped. Lock us in? You see, you understand. It's the only way for me to leave the house, if I'm ever to do it. She drew another difficult breath. The key will be returned by a safe person in half an hour, perhaps sooner. She trembled so much that she was obliged to lean against the settle for support. Wyant looked at her steadily. He was very sorry for her. I can't, Miss Lombard, he said at length. You can't. I'm sorry. I must seem cruel, but consider. He was stopped by the futility of the word. As well ask a hunted rabbit to pause in its dash for a hole. Wyant took her hand. It was cold and nerveless. I will serve you in any way I can, but you must see that this is impossible. Can't I talk to you again, perhaps? Oh, she cried, starting up. There he comes! Dr. Lombard's steps sounded in the passage. Wyant held her fast. Tell me one thing. He won't let you sell the picture. No, hush! Make no pledges for the future, then. Promise me that. The future... In case he should die, your father's an old man. You haven't promised, she shook her head. Don't, then. Remember that. She made no answer, and the key turned in the lock. As he passed out of the house, its scowling cornice and facade of ravaged brick looked down on him with the startlingness of a strange face seen momentarily in a crowd and impressing itself on the brain as part of an inevitable future. Above the doorway... The marble hand reached out like the cry of imprisoned anguish. Wyant turned away impatiently. Rappy, she said to himself. She isn't walled in. She can get out if she wants to. 4. Wyant had any number of plans for coming to Miss Lombard's aid. He was elaborating the 20th when, on the same afternoon, he stepped into the express train for Florence. By the time the train reached Certaldo, 
He was convinced that in thus hastening his departure he had followed the only reasonable course. At Empoli he began to reflect that the priest and the Levite had probably justified themselves in much the same manner. A month later, after his return to England, he was unexpectedly relieved from these alternatives of extenuation and approval. A paragraph in the morning paper announced the sudden death of Dr. Lombard, the distinguished English dilettante who had long resided in Siena. Wyant's justification was complete. Our blindest impulses become evidence of perspicacity when they fall in with the course of events. Wyant could now comfortably speculate on the particular complications from which his foresight had probably saved him. The climax was unexpectedly dramatic. Miss Lombard on the brink of a step which, whatever its issue, would have burdened her with retrospective compunction, had been set free before her suitor's ardours could have had time to cool, and was now doubtless planning a life of domestic felicity on the proceeds of the Leonardo. One thing, however, struck Wyant as odd. He saw no mention of the sale of the picture. He had scanned the papers for an immediate announcement of its transfer to one of the great museums, but presently concluding that Miss Lombard, out of filial piety, had wished to avoid an appearance of unseemly haste in the disposal of her treasure. He dismissed the matter from his mind. Other affairs happened to engage him. The months slipped by, and gradually the lady and the picture dwelt less vividly in his mind. It was not till five or six years later when chance took him again to Siena. The recollection started from some inner fold of memory. He found himself, as it happened, at the head of Dr. Lombard's street, and glancing down that grim thoroughfare caught an oblique glimpse of the doctor's house-front, with the dead hand projecting above its threshold. The sight revived his interest, and that evening, over an admirable frittata, he questioned his landlady about Miss Lombard's marriage. The daughter of the English doctor? But she has never married, signore. Never married? What then became of Count Ottaviano? For a long time he waited, but last year he married a noble lady of the Marema. But what happened? Why was the marriage broken? The landlady enacted the pantomime of baffled interrogation. And Miss Lombard still lives in her father's house? Yes, signore, she is still there. And the Leonardo? The Leonardo also is still there. The next day, as Wyatt entered the house of the dead hand, he remembered Count Ottaviano's injunction to ring twice, and smiled mournfully to think that so much subtlety had been in vain. But what could have prevented the marriage? If Dr. Lombard's death had been long delayed, time might have acted as a dissolvent, or the young lady's resolve have failed, but it seemed impossible that the white heat of ardour in which Wyant had left the lovers should have cooled in a few short weeks. As he ascended the vaulted stairway, the atmosphere of the place seemed a reply to his conjectures. The same numbing air fell on him, like an emanation from some persistent willpower, a something fierce and imminent which might reduce to impotence every impulse within its range. Wyant could almost fancy a hand upon his shoulder, guiding him upward with the ironical intent of confronting him with the evidence of its work. 
and he was presently introduced to the tapestried room where, from their usual seats in the window, Mrs. Lombard and her daughter advanced to welcome him with faint ejaculations of surprise. Both had grown oddly old, but in a dry, smooth way as fruits might shrivel on a shelf instead of ripening on the tree. Mrs. Lombard was still knitting and pausing now and then to warm her swollen hands above the brazier, and Miss Lombard in rising had laid aside a strip of needlework which might have been the same on which Wyant had first seen her engaged. Their visitor inquired discreetly how they had fared in the interval and learned that they had thought of returning to England, but had somehow never done so. "'I am sorry not to see my aunts again,' Mrs. Lombard said resignedly, "'but Sibylla thinks it best that we should not go this year.' Next year, perhaps, murmured Miss Lombard in a voice which seemed to suggest that they had a great waste of time to fill. She had returned to her seat and sat bending over her work. Her hair enveloped her head in the same thick braids, but the rose colour of her cheeks had turned to blotches of dull red, like some pigment which has darkened in drying. "'And Professor Clyde, is he well?' Mrs. Lombard asked affably, continuing as her daughter raised a startled eye. Surely, Sibylla, Mr. Wyant was the gentleman who was sent by Professor Clyde to see the Leonardo. Miss Lombard was silent, but Wyant hastened to assure the elder lady of his friend's well-being. Ah, oh, perhaps then he will come back some day to Siena, she said, sighing. Wyant declared that it was more than likely, and there ensued a pause, which he presently broke by saying to Miss Lombard, And you, you still have the picture? She raised her eyes and looked at him. "'Should you like to see it?' she asked. On his assenting she rose and, extracting the same key from the same secret drawer, unlocked the door beneath the tapestry. They walked down the passage in silence, and she stood aside with a grave gesture, making Wyant pass before her into the room. Then she crossed over and drew the curtain back from the picture. The light of the early afternoon poured full on it, its surface appeared to ripple and heave with a fluid splendour. The colours had lost none of their warmth, the outlines none of their pure precision. It seemed to wind like some magical flower which had burst suddenly from the mould of darkness and oblivion. He turned to Miss Lombard with a movement of comprehension. Ah, I understand. You couldn't part with it after all, he cried. No, I couldn't part with it, she answered. It's too beautiful, too beautiful, he assented. Too beautiful, she turned on him with a curious stare. I have never thought it beautiful, you know. He gave back the stare. You've never, she shook her head. It's not that. I hate it. I've always hated it. But he wouldn't let me. He will never let me now. Wyant was startled by her use of the present tense. A look surprised him too. There was a strange fixity of resentment in her innocuous eye. Was it possible that she was labouring under some delusion, or did the pronoun not refer to her father? You mean that Dr. Lombard didn't wish you to part with the picture? No, he prevented me. He will always prevent me. There was another pause. You promised him then, uh, before his death? No, I promised nothing. He died too suddenly to make me, a voice sang to a whisper. I was free, perfectly free, or 
I thought I was till I tried. Till you tried to disobey him, to sell a picture. Then I found it was impossible. I tried again and again, but he was always in the room with me. She glanced over her shoulder as though she heard a step, and to Wyant too for a moment the room seemed full of a third presence. And you, you can't, he faltered, unconsciously dropping his voice to the pitch of hers. She shook her head, gazing at him mystically. I can't lock him out. I can never lock him out now. I told you I should never have another chance. Wyant felt the chill of her words like a cold breath in his hair. Oh, he groaned, but she cut him off with a grave gesture. It is too late, she said. But you ought to have helped me that day. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was The House of the Dead Hand by Edith Wharton and it was recommended for me to read by Zetai Khan or Zetai Khan or Zetai Chan, I'm not sure how to say it, on May 3rd, 2022. So only a year and a bit, year and a half late. Well, Edith Wharton, eh? she's a good writer, but many people will, will be like, um, eh, what's that about him? Or, that wasn't scary. It's supposed to be a scary story. That wasn't scary. And fair, fair point. Both of those, really. Both, both those points are fair. First of all, I'm going to say something about Edith Wharton. I've done a couple of her stories, more than a couple. I've done a few of Edith's stories. Edith, as I call her, because uh, Miss, Mrs. Wharton. Miss Wharton. She was a Mrs. Wharton. She married a man called Wharton, as you will see. Edith Wharton born Edith Newbold Jones, January 24th, 1862 died August 11th, 1937, was an American writer and designer. So here's the thing. You know, that thing, Keeping Up With The Joneses, her family were the Joneses. They were the rich, rich, rich people, you know. Uh, she was known for her insider's knowledge of the upper-class New York aristocracy and her realistic portrayal of the lives and morals of the Gilded Age, as it was called. In 1921, she became the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So she, you know, she knows how to write for her novel, The Age of Innocence. Uh, I loved that film with Michelle Pfeiffer in... is old now, it's the 80s, isn't it? But uh, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1996. Some of her other well-known works include The House of Mirth, Ethan Froome, of course, well-known, and several notable ghost stories, of which we've done a few. Watton was born in New York City to a wealthy and socially prominent family. She was educated by tutors and governesses during her family's travels to Europe and she became fluent in French, German and Italian. She started writing stories and poetry at a young age, and her first published work appeared when she was 15 years old. Despite the lack of encouragement from her family, I wonder what they wanted her to do. Nothing, I suppose. In social circles, she continued to write throughout her life. In 1885, she married Edward Robbins Wharton, a sportsman and gentleman of the same social class who shared a love of travel. Travel, not trouble. However, their marriage was troubled. So, you know, travel, trouble. And they divorced in 1913. After 28 years, Wharton then moved permanently to France, where she lived for the rest of her life. During World War I, Wharton was a tireless supporter of the French war effort, organising relief work for refugees, the injured, 
the unemployed and the displaced. In recognition of her dedication, she was appointed a Chevalier of the Legion of Honour, Francis' highest, highest award in 1916. Wharton's writing often dealt with themes such as social and individual fulfilment, repressed sexuality and the manners of old families and the new elite. She was also a committed supporter of French imperialism, describing herself as a rabid or rabid imperialist. She died of a stroke in 1937 at her home in Saint-Brice-sous-Forêt in France. That's a potted history of her. Her... Like you would do E.F. Benson, he did comic novels about this class of people. And uh, Henry James and people like this, meant, you know, this is the moneyed elite of the um, Edwardian age and late Victorian Edwardian period. They always say when you write, you write about your youth. You don't necessarily, writers don't write about what's happening now. They write about their formative years. As I've said before, you like the music you liked when you were 17. Uh, and um, so you see in her M Mrs. Lombard, that kind of vacuous, and also, it's not even impotent, and that's the thing about, I think this is a theme of the story, power, I sound like a Marxist, um, and I'll explain why I say that. So, of course, the Marx's critique of society was, it was all about power struggles between, and he, and he was about between um, the, the owners of capital and the workers, to him, you know, he he said feudalism had passed, but it was a struggle. History was a struggle between those two classes of people, the workers and the owners. Um, now, in as as um, the uh, socialist parties of Europe, at least, have moved on from from their support of working people, they are now looking at identity politics as their project and looking at the imbalances of power as they see them, as they construe them between the different classes. So that's why I say analysis of something is um, a, a, on a power basis is, well, it's not inherently Marxist, but it, 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 it's related to that project. So, and it's a feminist project as well. And I speak as a, you know, if you would have the word, I'm not allowed to say anything about this. So I'm not going to have an opinion about it. Don't you worry about that. Um, but um, I will just note that clearly the story is about, is it about, is it, it's written by a woman, yeah. It's about these impotent women. And, and that's a weird thing to say about, you know, because impotence, I mean, just means lacking power. But of course, we, um, it has another meaning about male uh, sexual prowess and lacking that. So it's, it's a weird thing to say about women in that sense. But, you know, m the missus, she would like to go back to England. Uh, she says that her husband acknowledges her, her, that she doesn't like living in Italy and he lets her talk about it, but that's as far as we go. And even when he's dead, so I think this, this story is reviewed in places and they talk about the Miss Lombard's lack of power, but Mrs Lombard is also utterly powerless. And in the reviews I've read of it, and there's not many, they don't, they don't emphasise the, the older Mrs Lombard, but she is as enthrall to uh, Dr Lombard's personality and power as her daughter to the extent of she she wants to go back to England but she doesn't she wants to go back to a little she doesn't want to live in a fancy Italian house she wants to go and live in a probably a posh house in a in an English village um and with her aunts who have um the wives of uh baronets remember baronet is the lowest 
So, and what I would say here is that, you know, Wharton knows that. She knows about the stratification of the upper classes and uh, the fact that they have the what two of the wives of baronets come twice a year. So that, that precision of marking their social status, and she's so good at that. And I think if you're like many of us, you wouldn't get that because it's a different world. We know, we know if you're a gang member, you know all the signs, you know what clothes to wear, you know what all that means. And like the upper classes have their own class. It was the Mitfords, wasn't there? There's that um, the words that are you and non-you. So you is what we the posh say, and non-you is what people who are not the, not of that group. Think of thieves can't. So thieves make and and what's that? The the, the gay language polari that existed uh, it's certainly in England, uh, which was a an in language for gay people, and then the thieves can't was an, an in language for thieves and the upper classes have their own in language as well every group does every group does you know doctors do but every every group does so but wharton is of that group and she knows it and she portrays it and i think her comic portrait of the older mrs lombard is, is kind of brutal it's filleting her with a fish knife but but if we're allowed to laugh and have cruel laughs at people then possibly that. I mean, she's a bit pathetic, Mrs. Mrs. Lombard, but she's comic, nevertheless. The the young Miss Lombard's less comic. So if you want to talk about, you know, from a feminist point of view, they're under the power of the man of the house to the extent, I mean, she buys the picture, she hates the picture, she spends her inheritance, not his inheritance, on buying a picture that he loves, that she hates, and, he, and she is his slave. She trots out the words he's given it in a lesson, she shows it off, but she absolutely hates it. And so she's under his power, even at the end. So that's a non-supernatural thing. And you may well say that this is actually not a ghost story. But it it, it is argued that the, the two aspects, really, of it, one is that the ghost of Dr. Lombard haunts the women of the house after his death by making them do stuff. I think that's tenuous to claim it to be a ghost story. The other is that the, this idea that a house possesses its inhabitants. And we have that in... Um, John Buchan's Full Circle. We have it in Rudyard Kipling's They. We have it in Oak of Oakhurst by Vernon Lee. And there was a whole genre of artwork and stories about the house beautiful. It still continues. You know, things like Country Life, the magazine, feature the house beautiful. And it's this uh, worship and fetishization almost of a beautiful, usually country house, not always a country house. There is something in it. I mean, beautiful houses are beautiful, aren't they, with the beautiful gardens and everything's beautiful, beautiful furniture. There's a house in London I want to go and see, which was is a... I've been to a couple of the arts and crafts houses and they are tremendous, really. So I was going to say uh, Lord Leighton's house in West London. You know, he was the um, Victorian painter, a pre-Raphaelite kind of guy, Lord Frederick Leighton. And I would love... Apparently it's voted the top date destination. So if you're... If you listen... Anybody's listening lives in London or wants to impress, take take your um, enamoured one, your loved one. I was going to say bitter stuff, but I, I thought that was possibly, you know, not acceptable these days to say that about a man. So to take them there, apparently it's good. So why do I like Leighton? And what they always say, so you know, they say like they'll, you like the music that you were when you were 17. We like this the artwork necessarily of our... Uh, not our grandparents, our great-grandparents. So w at the moment, we quite like Victorian things, whereas some of my mother's generation, 
hated it, hated it. The sort of the mid 20th century people despised Victorian stuff. And then we've come around to thinking, oh, it's quite nice, isn't it? You know, and it'll go like that. So that now um, this kind of, oh, you know, the 70s was a disaster for visual art and, and, de and decoration and design as far as I was concerned. But young people, younger than me, which isn't hard these days, uh, love it, you know. Anyway, back to Edith Wharton and what, what's her story about. So we, we look at it, you know, we can say it from a feminist point of view. You can, if you're a woman. Um, I, I'm tongue-in-cheek here, guys, so don't, don't keep your shirts on. So also, we might look at it from a, a, a psychoanalytical point of view. And that might be to say, this is about the so-called Electra a complex. So you're probably famous, uh, familiar with the Oedipus complex, and which is, you know, Freud said that basically um, boys compete with their fathers for the love of their mothers. And, you know, being Freud, he, he did, you know, at least more than hint that there was a sexual element in this, although repressed. But the young man is beloved of his mother and, and mothers fall in love with their babies and that, in, a, in a romantic sense. And there is love, clearly, and it can, it can get very torturous and complicated, one's relationship with one's parents. But the, the, the Oedipus complex, and the, the equivalent is the Electra complex, whereby the daughter competes with the mother for her father's uh, attention and, and, and affection. Now, we don't get... And of course, the task then is to escape, of the boy to escape from the mother's apron strings a man a boy must grow to be a man by turning from his mother and finding a partner in the outside world could be another guy these days but traditionally would have been a woman now the same is true for a woman and if it's if that fails and and it does fail and some men and some women never escape from the influence of their uh, father and mother, the, the 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 parent of the opposite sex, and they they are their thoughts are, and they're it's all you know unconscious subconscious, but they are and and we could say that this is her enthralled to her father. Now let's get Kleinian in this because Melanie Klein is another uh, psychoanalyst and not necessarily about the Electra and the Oedipus complex, but what she was saying was really we we adore our parents. But we hate them as well because we've got to fight to be free of them. They make us do stuff. We want our will and they say, no, you can't have it. And we hate them for that. We want to destroy them and that makes us anxious because for two reasons. Klein would say we, the loved object, we fear to destroy it because if we, we destroy the loved, if we, our rage and anger destroys that love object, parent then what will we do who will keep us safe and also the flip side of it what if the love object what if that object that we destroy the parental object that's interjected what if it strikes back at us and destroys us so you know you see this and i you know i see this in lots of my patients and particularly i'm going to say something about a patient group which is relatively big um, in terms of numbers of people that I see, but I, I find very fascinating, although uh, demanding, emotionally demanding to work with, and she's people with emotionally unstable personality disorder, and and that appears to arise from a failure of the caregiver, the parental caregiver, often 
usually the mother. Not always, could be the grandmother, could be the father. But the infant looks for security and comfort from that figure. If that, and, and if that works well, and if the carer is able to soothe the, the infant of its anxiety, of its existential anxiety, because, you know, if you don't have your parents love you, as a, you're, you're going to die as a child. So it's a real deal. It's not just a little bit of, oh, I'm a bit upset. It's like an existential threat to your existence. It's, it's powerful, overwhelming to an infant. So if the parent, let's say, the caregiver can comfort the child, the child ultimately learns how to comfort itself. And if you think about this, it's like if you're in an airline, it's very um, bumpy and you're bumping up and down in your seat, lots of turbulence, and you look at the stewards and stewardesses and they're just laughing and pouring coffee. You're like, oh, cute. They do it all the time. They know what they're talking about. They're not scared. Therefore, I'm not scared. You know, the com their confidence. And so the confidence of the parent soothes the child. But what if the parent is not there? What if they're just absent? What if they're preoccupied with their new boyfriend or girlfriend? What if they're drunk? What if they're on drugs? What if they are so wracked by their own anxiety that they cannot soothe your infant anxiety? Then you never learn. So that, that child then goes through life seeking that caregiver, but hating the care, loving, needing, but hating the caregiver at the same time. And it flips and, t and believing, so the child believes ultimately that there's something wrong with them. They're not lovable. They were not loved because they're not lovable. And that's not, obviously not true, but that's what it feels like. And so they look through their life for somebody who will give them that soothing comfort because they can't do it themselves. And so they make inordinate demands on the caregiver and people start off trying to meet that. And then they inevitably fail. They inevitably let the person down because they are human. And then, then, then the person hates them and will test them and will... And they do lots of testing behavior. So what they, they'll, you know, I knew you didn't love me anyway, but you've done these awful things. How am I so, yeah, but if you love me, you can't tolerate me. So I knew you didn't love me. And you go, we have a hint. This is that great diatribe is we have a hint of this in Lombard, Miss Lombard's relationship with her father. She has the opportunity through this young man to leave. And our man, Wyant, says she's not locked up. She could go. So she's not physically locked up. And it's debatable whether a father would physically stop her. So what's there is, is like a psychological chain. She, she is so emotionally bound to her father and she resents him for it. This picture that he adores, she hates, you know. Um, and so I think that's something, and, and it's so strong that even when he's dead, it's still there because, you know, People who have these complexes, even when the parent that has co-created them dies, they're not free of them. They are, they are bound by the ghost. And so I think that this is a great insight by Wharton, and this is her great um, gift. Whether she knew, I mean, explicitly, she probably couldn't have kind of talked about it in terms of attachment theory and all of that psychological stuff. But she knew from her observations and she was able to paint a picture of it. It's like... Uh, Monet painting, you know, can he explain all the physics? And all? No, 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 but he knows what he sees and he paints what he sees with the emotion that goes with it, you know, and I think Wharton's able to do that. And that's why I think she's a great writer. She's able to do that. Now, so you might say the first the first thing was it wasn't a ghost story and um, we've, we've kind of suggested that the ghost of the house, potentially, I think that's weak, the ghost of the father, in a strict supernatural sense, that's 
that's tenuous. Maybe the ghost of the father is there because he talks about at the end, Wyant talks about how he feels there is a third. And of course, that makes me think of that T.S. Eliot poem, who is the third who was always with us, you know. You know, so okay, okay, okay. That's maybe a fig leaf, a sop to the ghost story. Maybe the ghost of the... But I don't think it is a ghost story in that sense. And they may say, it's not scary. Well, let me tell you. So say you go to a haunted house tonight and uh, something creaks downstairs and you're very, very frightened and you run out and you're scared. And then next day you go to work or you go on with your life. That's it. No biggie. That's not scary. That's ghosts. That's ghosts for you. I was once at Chillingham Castle, right, and doing one of these ghost hunts and we were downstairs in the dungeon and suddenly the door at the end and I swear down there was nobody there, burst open very forcibly and I'm like, whoa, hair stood up the back of my head. Who was that? There was nobody visibly human there that did it. You know, maybe somebody was playing a trick from the staff, but there didn't appear to be anybody there. I didn't hear anybody leave. Uh, went and examined it and there wasn't, you know, there was no reason why. Sure, let's say it's a ghost. So that's that scary, but what is far more terrifying is to be bound by one's um, non-constructive, I'm thinking of the rest of the word, you know, really uh, damaging relationship that that haunts you even when you're not there. I've had, and of course, um, in people do, they, they, we have a thing called the transference and the counter-transference. So what happens is that this becomes your, it, say you've had this experience and you, you've never had soothing from your parent and so you don't know how to soothe and you go looking for it in other people. You, you, you try with everybody. That becomes your template for relationships. And so all your work relationships, all your romantic relationships, all your friendships follow the same pattern. And, they, and if you've got this problem with relationships caused by this, it, they will all be awful and unstable. And um, so you, you transfer it. And of course, as, as a professional, we get that transferred to us all the time. I remember sometime uh, I've been seeing a guy in the police cell and he was just a young man. He was a troubled young man clearly, or else I wouldn't have gotten to see him. And uh, he became very angry at me. And he was in there for some trivial criminal damage. I think he'd put a fire extinguisher through a shop window or something. And he, and he was, te- he, he, somehow it was my fault that he'd done that. Because, of course, one of the things is people, they cannot take responsibility for, for their actions because they already suspect they're trash. So if they, if they do a bad thing and then take responsibility for it, that, that is intolerable to them. It has to go somewhere else. It has to be somebody else's fault. So it's going to be yours, you know? So it was mine. And I'm like, you know, I put, I made you, yeah, yeah, I wasn't even there. But I only say that because the power of the father over her, the father, the mother and the daughter are still trapped in that house in Siena. The mother doesn't want to be there. She's still got the painting, which she hates, the daughter. And this is due to the the power of the father, even though he's dead. So in, in that sense, he's a ghost. It is a ghost story and it is a terrifying story. It's we take it because it's all too common. And and again, I'm going to talk on a different level now about what the painting is. When I was first, when I was first looking at, it, I was thinking, do you know? I'm quite interested in lots of things, you know, um, sort of from a non-dualistic point of view. And one of the problems we have is we live in our um, conceptual universe. So I say, like, here I am in the mountains, I've got a map, and there are the mountains, and here's the map. And I look at the map and I go, well, this is the, these are the mountains. No, they're not the mountains, but we spend our time, we spend all our time in our concepts thinking about the future and the past 
and what people should do and what people ought to do and what we feel about that, rather than just kind of being here and not filtering the world through a system of shoulds, oughts, things we've been taught, things we've been absorbed about, have absorbed about how the world should be, how should people should behave. Let's just be here, what we think we are, what we think we should be. You know, and I thought initially that's what that's what the um that's what the painting was. The painting is the the real actuality. And the irony of that is of course it's a painting, it's not the actuality, you know. So there's a double irony there. Or just one irony maybe, but uh, it's it's a good one. Uh, and so there we are. So I, I thought that's what that's what it might be about this lack of immediacy, you know, immediate means without anything in the middle. So you are just here. That's it. Uh, I sound like Eckhart Tolle now, don't I? The power of now. But I think that's what he's saying as well. I actually think that's what all the kind of sages are saying, that we just get lost in um, these our forest, our whirlwind of thoughts, feelings about what should be, what you know, rather than being here right now in this minute, what is. Yeah, and, and I suppose in that sense... The daughter and the mother are chained up. Why doesn't she go back to Bond Church? She got the money to do it. Why not? Why does the daughter not? Why did the daughter not marry the young man who um, who who loved her? And I think that was. Um, I, I talked about um, Shalkin, the painter, as well as a failed, a failed project of individual individualization, individuation, whereby you know if the task of a human is to grow up and become a functioning emotionally mentally healthy creature that is is capable of acting in the world independently and being an individual then you have to grow from being a child which is bound to the family and an adolescent bound to the community and you have to grow up and you have to cut your dependence that isn't to say cut your love i think love's really important but not so the difference between that is you love them unconditionally it's not a possessive grasping love it's i just love you you know rather than I need you, you know, I think that's a difference. Anyway, I am, I'm not, I'm, this means a lot to me. So clearly, because this is what my life, my professional work is all about. Where, so in Schalken the Painter, our man is offered the chance to fight for his beloved and he doesn't because he's too weak and cowardly. And therefore she comes to him as a ghost in the end, but he's failed in his project when his father dies, which is a symbolism of him becoming a man, an independent man. He isn't. He isn't. Uh, and he's failed on that holy task of becoming an individual. And, and in this as well, we have it through Wyatt. Is just a, he's just a, a frame, a mirror for us looking in. But Miss Lombard could have become an individual woman in her own right. She could have escaped the powerful gravity of her powerful father by going with the young man who loved her and and having a an adult life but she failed to do that so in a sense i think both this and Schalke and the painter are really sad stories and i think they're both examples of how uh, supposedly supernatural literature can be supernatural genre stories can be literature because i think literature is about um <laughs> helping us with these problems, you know. Anyway, there we go. That's all very high and mighty, isn't it? Very highfalutin. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, uh, you know, I'm saying I'm doing my sleep radio, which is a very gentle little thing. So sleep radio is another YouTube channel, another podcast I'm doing, and basically we talk about customs and we talk about legends, and um, 
a ramble on and we do some poetry and stuff like that and it's just basically for you to f- fall asleep really if you want or if you if you're unable to fall asleep at least have a bit of company from the ramblings of my mad mind i'm not mad you know i have people come to me and go do you think i'm mad i go well if you're mad you wouldn't you wouldn't know you would be quite happy doing crazy things you wouldn't realize so the fact that you're worried about it shows that you're not and then I, um, I had people say, will you give me a certificate to say I'm not crazy? <laughs> I go, yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 50 quid. Uh, that's not true. I would never do that. Somebody asked me if I do private practice. I don't, actually. I don't know if I'm, I'm up to it. Anyway, yeah, so the, the, it was a good story. Get yourself to Leighton House Museum if you're in London. You won't regret it. We're all well. Jasper and Ruby, my doggies, are downstairs asleep. We went for a nice long walk today. Sheila's gone uh, babysitting to look after Noah, grandson. So I was, I did this instead. I'm going away next week with my two daughters, and we're going to Wales, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Catherine's dog Cosmo's been naughty. Dogs are just are naughty, aren't they? But we love them. I've been putting my mother's compression stockings on, and putting her hearing aids in, and she says I put her compression stockings on better than the nurse. But maybe she's just saying that because I'm her son. My car has developed an ominous rumble when I turn the wheel left, and I think it's something to do with the wheel bearing, so I don't want to go on a long drive with you to go on the longest drive. Not to Wales, we're going to Wales on the train, because uh, apparently if it's a wheel bearing, the, the wheel can suddenly stop. And if we're going down a motorway at 80 miles an hour, that's probably going to be bad. So I, I'm booked in to get it fixed. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you. Which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members only stories. Every month, I do at least one members only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash. Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.